For the past two weeks, the focus of our study has been on the story of David and Bathsheba. As heartbreaking of a story as it is, I am so thankful it is included in Scripture because of what it teaches us about the grace God gives to those who repent, you and I. When Nathan confronts David, David confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, 2 Samuel 12, 13. Then Nathan the prophet declares this, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die, verse 13. Grace. Think about it. The law of Moses required that murderers and adulterers be put to death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, chapter 24, verse 17. But because David confesses, God sets aside the requirements of the law, and God spared David's life, and God has spared his throne. It was not taken from David. Not only do we see God's grace in that regard, we also see a spiritual forgiveness. God reconciles David to himself. David would later write in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Paul will later use the example of God's forgiveness of David to show that God's way of salvation has always, always been to the unworthy, by grace through faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. As Christians, David's example shows the hope we have through God's offer of grace to sinners like you and I, especially when we're aware of how shameful our sins are. We're told in Scripture God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. How he saves the sexually immoral and murderers who repent. God invites sinners to run to him for compassion and abundant pardon. Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 7. Though grace is richly applied to David's life, there are other lessons to learn about God's forgiveness from the story of Absalom and David in 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we're going to spend our time, so let's dig into it. First, who is Absalom? Well, Absalom was the third son of King David. Uh, the bulk of Absalom's story is actually found in 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 19. Absalom's name means this, catch this, this is good, the father of peace. His name expresses the hope David had for his son, but Absalom would take a different path from what David had hoped for. Almost from the beginning, Absalom had several strikes against him. For one thing, he was much too handsome for his own good. In fact, he took such great pride in his hair. That's one of his downfalls. He had such a magnificent head of hair. Once a year, he had it trimmed. And just the trimming of his hair weighed three and a half pounds. Now that's a head of hair. But there was a second strike against Absalom. His father, David. As a father, David was either spoiling Absalom rotten or reading him the riot act, and that did not produce a stable character within Absalom. And it shows very, it shows very early on in Absalom's life. After meeting Absalom in 2 Samuel 13, there's a violent encounter between three of David's children. David had a beautiful daughter. Her name was Tamar, and her half-brother Amnon lusted after his sister. Well, when Tamar declined uh, Amnon's sexual advances, 
He plotted a way to get her to his house where he raped her. And after the rape, Amnon put Tamar out of his house, bringing her great shame and disgrace. Well, when his older brother Absalom heard what had happened, he took his sister in to live with him. And for the next two years, Absalom nursed a hatred, a hatred of his half-brother Amnon, eventually making an evil plot himself. Absalom invites Amnon to his house for a party. Now, while everyone is enjoying the festivities, in the presence of David's other sons, Absalom had his servants kill Amnon in cold blood. Well, as you can imagine, this creates a division within the household of David, not peace as Absalom's name would suggest. Strife. Division in the family. It shouldn't come as a surprise to David, because after his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah, God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. Why? Because you, David, despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. See, David's children end up paying the price for David's sin. Well, out of fear that his father would send the sword after him, Absalom runs away and stays away from Jerusalem for three years. And it's during that time that scripture says that David longed to go out to Absalom, chapter 13, verse 39. But we're never told that actually that David actually did anything to reconcile the father-son relationship with Absalom. Then we see in chapter 14, knowing how heartbroken King David was over Absalom, Joab creates a plan on how to get David and Absalom back together. And the plan works. Absalom is back in Jerusalem. So we would expect David to go and meet Absalom to get the family back together again. But instead, after returning to Jerusalem, Absalom doesn't see the face of David, his father, for two long years. Absalom lives by himself in his own, own house, away from the royal family. And as you can imagine, tension continues to rise within him. Finally, with further involvement of Joab, father and son do get back together, and there's a small measure of reconciliation. But when we turn the page of our Bible to chapter 15, family peace falls apart again. Uh, possibly resenting his father's hesitancy to bring him home, Absalom begins to undermine David's rule, David's kingship. Absalom sets his, himself up as a judge in Jerusalem, using this position to make political promises to motivate people to make him, Absalom, king. And guess what? It works. After four years, Absalom goes to Hebron, where he secretly arranged to have himself made king, undermining his father, King David. And many citizens of the kingdom of Israel began following Absalom. Now David becomes fearful for his, for his life. So David gathers his servants and he flees Jerusalem, leaving behind some of his concubines. Upon arriving in Jerusalem as the new king in chapter 16, 
Absalom wants to solidify his place on the throne. So what does he do? He takes over David's house. Not only does he take over the house, he sleeps with David's concubines, a disrespectful and unforgivable act. Then we come to 2 Samuel 17. One of Absalom's advisors tells Absalom to pursue and attack David's forces and to look for David specifically, because if Absalom kills King David, he defeats the enemy, chapter 17, verse 10. But the idea was abandoned after one of David's advisors was able to persuade Absalom to not attack at this time. And it's this delay, this delay that allows David to rally what troops he had to mount a counterattack to retake his kingdom. And tucked away in the middle of all this action, there is a little note that the author makes that is important for us to hold on to as the readers of this story. It's in chapter 17 at the end of verse 14, and here's what it says. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Now, why is that so significant? The author is telling us, the reader, that God has taken the side of David in this battle. Now, we just covered a whole lot in that short amount of time. We now come to our text, 2 Samuel 18. Are you ready to dig into it? Let's go. Before Absalom's attack, David was a wreck. Uh, he was afraid he might lose his throne. He was even more afraid he might lose his son, Absalom. Sure, his son may be a thorn in David's side, uh, a traitor guilty of treason against King David. But Absalom was also the apple of David's eye. And before the fighting started, David told his chiefs of staff that if they catch Absalom, they were to take it easy on him for David's sake. Do not be harsh with him. And scripture makes the point that all David's troops heard David's orders concerning Absalom. Now we know David's house is divided, but now in verse six, we also see how the kingdom of Israel is divided. Verse six says this, the people went out into the field against Israel. You see the Hebrew word here for people, it means God's people. So literally it reads, God's people went out to fight against Israel. This means we had a, have a battle of God's true people, David's army, against Israel, who were supposed to be with God, but at the moment aren't Absalom's army. And a kingdom is divided by, a, by war. Also notice where this battle takes place. It says the forest of Ephraim. Now this is an important detail because listen to what the forest does in verses seven to eight. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David. And the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Yes, all the deaths in the forest, it could highlight how undisciplined the troops of Absalom's army were as they die falling into pits and, and, and going over cliffs. But what if, what if the deaths in the forest are showing us how God is fighting on David's side? 
how God is using the forest as additional warriors to defeat the rebellion of Absalom. Because remember, David is leading the true people of God. I think this becomes even clearer as the writer takes our attention off the army and now focuses it on King Absalom in verse 9. Here it says this, verse 9, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men, and he was riding his mule. Now, pause here. By riding a mule, Absalom is promoting himself as king. The mule is showing he has replaced David. Now look what happens in verse 9. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. Notice how the forest is back in the story. Listen, the text continues. And Absalom's head caught fast in the oak. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him kept going. Now, we hear that story. And we laugh at the humor of the story. In fact, we imagine it being a scene we would see in America's Funniest Videos. But when the Israelites hear it, they gasp in horror. Why? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says this, Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. You see, being caught in a tree as the reader, we now know that Absalom is cursed by God. As the tree gobbles up Absalom and leaves him hanging while his royal mount gallops off, Absalom is royalty no more. The tree took him off his throne. This is a divine sign that God has removed him from the throne. Absalom never was and never will be king over God's kingdom. Also, against David's order, Absalom is killed by 10 of General Joab's armor bearers. Now, by sending 10, Joab is explaining that the killing of Absalom was divinely ordained, as 10 is the number of completion or perfection. The armor bearers did no wrong in slaying Absalom. In fact, they were God's hand of justice. Now jump down to verses 31 to 33. This is where David receives the news of Absalom's death. David is grief-stricken. He's destroyed. And in his inconsolable state, he completely forgets who he is in God. He forgets what his duties are as God's anointed king of Israel. David forgets where his loyalties and priorities ought to be. And so we find him in this text over and over again saying this, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom. You see, David wishes he had died instead of his son, Absalom. No doubt he was completely sincere in that wish. David is questioning if he has the inner strength to continue to glorify God in the midst of all the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. David would rather die so that the pain would finally leave him in peace. What this shows us is David cared more about the demise of his evil son than he did for all of his other loyal sons and daughters who were still alive. He forgot the loyalty of his wives, his soldiers who had risked their lives for him. He forgot the loyalty of his fellow countrymen who needed David's leadership more than ever at this, at this critical moment. In chapter 19, we next find King David in a room over the gate. 
And David is in that room, and the text says he's trembling, trembling. Now, one commentator observed that, that David's trembling is not an intense state of mourning, but rather as an intense state of guilt. David knew. He knew in the depths of his heart that even Absalom's rebellion was David's fault. All of this horror and death upon his family and his kingdom, it was the outpouring of God's curse about him for David's terrible sins, mostly revolving around Bathsheba. David felt personally responsible, and there was no shaking it. David was right. And it is a lesson that we must all prepare for if we're going to sin against the Lord. If we're going to ignore God's word and his commandments, then we should prepare for the, for the worst. You see, I cringe when I hear thoughtful believers state this. There is no consequence anymore for sinning, not earthly or heavenly. Nothing could be less scriptural or accurate. You see, our sins, indeed, have been forgiven upon the stripes and the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but only in the spiritual uh, sphere. We still bear the earthly consequences of our trespasses, as David did and would until his dying breath. So what? What can we take away from this story? First, even though we may be forgiven, as we said, sin still has consequences. So what purpose is there in still having consequences after God has forgiven us? Well, we're told that David's discipline was necessary for two reasons. Two reasons. Reason number one, 2 Samuel 12, 14, to uphold the Lord's reputation. But second, to teach future generations that sin has consequences, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. So for just a moment, look at how God's word through the prophet Nathan played out. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Nathan said, The sword shall never depart from your house. And God shatters the peace and stability that David spent a lifetime establishing as his kingdom is torn apart by two civil wars. 2 Samuel chapter 12, 11 to 12, Nathan says this, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. You see, the sexual sin and the murderous violence of which David was involved in secretly actually becomes the sins Amnon and Absalom will do publicly. Then we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. Nathan says, the, the child shall die. You see, the baby conceived by David's sin died seven days after he was born. 2 Samuel chapter 12, 15 to 23. Here's the warning. Be careful, church. Be careful that we do not take sin too lightly. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar sums up well the terrible price of sin. He says this, Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. You see, as Christians... God uses two different ways to motivate his disciples to run from sin. There are two ways. We get to choose the way. The first motivator is this, love. 
God's forgiveness of our sins should grow our love for God to the point that we run from evil desires in order to pursue God's righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. But the second motivator, as it was for David, is consequences. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 tells us the consequences of our sin can be a motivator for us to leave sin. So if you choose consequences as your motivator instead of love, you better have the posture of David when you face the consequences. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 12, David prays this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, David knows he will deal with the consequences of his sin, but he asks God to maintain his joy. He asks for God to sustain him as he has difficult years ahead of him. But David also asked God to give him willingness and perseverance to follow God in the midst of the consequences. God wants to do all of that for us. So you've made mistakes. There will be consequences. But remember, you will be forgiven. But God wants to walk with you as you deal with the consequences. God won't let you drift into despair. He wants to give you back your joy. And not only that, God will give you the willingness to persevere as life gets tough. Even in the consequences for sin, follow God in the path that he has for you. God loves you and he's walking with you.